Hello, good afternoon or good morning, wherever you are in the world. My name is uh, Maurizio Cecconi. I'm the head of anesthesia and intensive care at Humanitas Research Hospital in Milan, and I'm the president of the European Society of Intensive Care Medicine. Today, uh, we open a new format. Uh, it's a 30 minutes with, and uh, it's a great pleasure, it's a great honor to have our first uh, guest, Professor Luciano Gattinoni. Uh, Luciano Gattinoni does not need an introduction. If I have to read his short CV, probably we would feel the full 30 minutes, so I'm not going to do that. Uh, but for everyone to know, he's now is a guest professor at the University of Gettingen. And so, uh, welcome, Luciano. Ciao, Maurizio, and uh, good evening, good day, good morning to everybody. Hmm? How are you, Not Luciano? Uh, Luciano, let me ask uh, uh, the first question, because I know that you are in Germany now, but um, everyone knows that you've been in Milan for many, many years. You retired uh, a few years ago. So what, what are you actually doing in Gettingen now? In Gettingen, we have an excellent uh, research group. Uh, we have in part uh, from Germany, in part from uh, Italy. And uh, we do basically experimental medicine. So a quite long-term experiment, we try to have uh, the intensive care in, uh, in a Schwein, in the German pigs, for uh, at least 48 hours, uh, which a long-term, I think, we learn uh, a lot of things. And we concentrate basically on the possible damages of mechanical ventilation, plus sepsis, plus some, something else. Hmm? The, the question is, you retired, uh, I don't remember how many years ago from Milan. Uh, why are you still doing research? What motivates you to do research? Uh, to do what else, you know, because you have two alternatives when you retire, no? Uh, to, to go with the dogs, uh, to see the, how, how the people build houses and so on. But first, I didn't have a dog and I still had some curiosity. So I think the curiosity was the most, the main drive of my life. And so I, I think uh, then you can add many other things you know, uh, to, to grow up some people, blah, blah, blah. But the basic drive uh, is the, the curiosity. And this is a never ending process. So the, I agree with you. I think that the curiosity is what keeps us alive uh, uh, in our profession. Clinical research and uh, you know education, it's uh, all of that together, but specifically in research. Um, today, I, I, I'm not going to ask you questions about COVID, by the way. Everyone is asking questions about COVID these days. Maybe there will be some uh, from social media we will see and I'm, I'm reminding everyone that you can participate we have our social media team scouting for questions online um, but let me ask uh, first something to you. you you've been a mentoring you've been a model for many of us in intensive care and inspiration to go to intensive care um, what inspired you to go into intensive care i don't even know if i can say was it 30 years ago 40 years ago uh, what what was, was intensive care already a specialty at the time? What no, motivated well, you to go there? Well, well, absolutely not. Well, my motivation was my friend, the Apikino, came to me after we were graduated medical medical degree for a couple of months, and he told me, you know, 
we found, I found what is perfect for us. What is perfect for us? Is the applied physiology. And uh, we have a space for applied physiology. So we arrived in a small piece and we were all, um, all uh, students together. We don't have anybody before us. So we were free to do whatever mistake we wanted, but everybody was loving the applied physiology. Whatever we would do was oriented in that way. And physiology means mathematics, means physics, means bioenergetics, means this kind of thing. To understand the mechanism, not the outcome. The mechanism on the basis outcome. This was the driving to go intensive care. And you do something and you see the results. You have a system, you perturbation of the system, and you see immediately the result. You note and you grow. So I, I, I like what you said. I think it's, uh, it's again something that many of us can relate uh, about intensive care is this uh, continuous physiology in front of us. But the of the many fields and uh, you know many aspects of physiology, I often like to to think that the intensivist is the doctor that looks after the whole body. It's not just one system. It's not just the lungs. It's not just the heart, uh, and so on. But in the specific, you had uh, a strong passion and a strong drive to go specifically in the field of respiratory failure. Um, why was that? Was it a natural uh, encounter, or was it? Uh, what was it that made you explore so much respiratory failure? Well, as, as many as many other things in life, they happen by, by chance. Because I had an occasion to go to the United States. I didn't speak one word in English, not, not much better than now, but you know, uh, even much worse than now. And uh, somebody told me, wait, there is a, some strange man, his name is Dr. Korobov, which is at NIH, which play with extracorporeal circulation and the sheep. And he needs a fellow. We got two goals. Why not? So I arrived in one morning. Don't ask me where I spent the first night in the United States. No idea. So I had a guitar, the pato, and a lot of money to, to, to try to find the telephone. And at the day after, I came to NIH and met Korbov. And Korbov was working on. On a, on a membrane lung and a new membrane lung. The ECMO was, uh, at the time, was uh, already a failure instead of, in, in, in terms of, uh, in terms of um, trials, the ZEPO trial. And Colbo said, well, why not what is CO2? Because he wanted to have a CO2 dialysis. My duty was uh, to test the lung. But I had a lot of physiology behind. I won't test the lung, the artificial lung, how much CO2 was exchanging. Still now, the people does not measure how much CO2 is cleared. Anyway, but I was interested to the lung and to the clearing of the CO2 in the pigs, in the, in the, in the, in the sheep. It was very clear that more CO2 you extract in one side, the spontaneous breathing sheep was decreasing is on ventilation. And so this was the key. For the lung arrest. Yeah. So we were speaking about the Landex in the 76, 77. Colbos was uh, at least uh, 20 years in advance. 
you, you, in a few conversations that you had, you often mentioned uh, Theodor Kolobov and uh, some of the uh, teachings that you say. I think you, you refer to something sometime like the experiment of one or how much you can learn on every single case. Uh, Absolutely. Kolobov was the real research. No? The, the, the great difficulty with, with Kolobov is, uh, um, is to put together one paper. Because Carlos say, okay, this is one experiment, change something. During the experiment, at the end, he said, what did you learn? Well, I learned this, and me too, okay. So the next we will change. And it was a continuous change along some line, but it was a continuous change not to publish, but to understand. This was this uh, great man, a great mind, Carlos. He had the capability when everybody was looking, this is black, this is not, this is white, maybe that you are looking with the wrong glasses. So, th so that was the, the beginning of uh, starting to look at physiology, but also being a pioneer in development techniques, just from understanding physiology and see if these, uh, these there worked on experiments on, on patients. And I think that was the beginning of intensive care. We are now, have moved on and we still like to learn and a lot about physiology but we have entered the the area of trials and i'm receiving some questions from uh, our team and uh, some questions that can probably be summarized in the how do you explain the discrepancy uh, between physiology and trial results and, and i would elaborate do you think there is a discrepancy or do you think there is a mistake in the way we we consider this dangerous uh... Dangerous territory. Okay, for trials, you need one gram of brain and two millions of patients. For a physiology, you need two kilos of brain and 10 patients. That's a very provocative answer, but I also Absolutely. know from your CV. Well, no, I ask your, all your man colleagues, no? tell me one study. It, they teach us something about the mechanism through an, uh, a big randomized trial. I speak in the trial, we do. So with the, say, with the syndrome, with sepsis, with that. Tell me one. I can tell you an example. Therefore, mm -hmm. meditation, sepsis. If I ask Maurizio, what's a sepsis? Sepsis is a terrible disease, no, excuse me, terrible syndrome. Which uh, uh, in which the, the, the guilty is not uh, is not the bacteria, but is the our body, the reaction. And we have ta -ta -ta -ta, cytokine storm. Cytokine storm exists, does not exist. Anyway, this is cytokine storm. This is born from uh, I think uh, also hundred years ago. This uh, this uh. after that, okay. If this is the observation which is the basis of the scientific method, this generates one hypothesis. If the observation generates the theory that is the bacteria or the virus, the response, the, the, the body, our body response, the hypothesis is, if so, if I correct our response, I will improve outcome. We did since 100 years, thousand of experiments no one showed that decreasing the response improved outcome and so we said la 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 
Mon pleasure, we will say. This is heterogeneous population. Oh, no, wait a second. It's a wrong time. Why not to say very simply that maybe the theory is wrong? So, let, let, me ask more let, let me ask more, more dangerous questions because uh, people that uh, hear you talking now, they, they may think that you don't like trials, but I've read your CV and you have actually conducted and published a few trials. I mean, I remember the New England on the SVO2, yeah. you know, more recently on albuming. So what were you searching then when you were finding trials and what did you uh, find? Uh, 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 do you want to be very sincere? At my age, I can, I don't have any problem. Well, the first trial in the New England had one real strong motivation. I wanted to have one paper on the New England, that's it. And uh, to be published in the New England, you needed this kind of approach. And, uh, but it was not very stupid because at that time, the supranormal values, a lot of my, my distinguished colleagues now say supranormal values is absolutely crazy. You should have heard them 30 years ago. Supranormal values, according to Schumacher and so on, was, a, I don't say a dogma, but was a strong drive. In this trial, we found there were exactly uh, having a supranormal value exactly as to have a normal value. The interesting in this trial, we had three groups, uh, and the number of deaths uh, was not similar, was identical. 271, 271, 270, something like that. And, uh, and the trial, I think, is, the, is the, the end stage demonstration to introduce something new of which you know, and you study the mechanism before, to have this technique accepted by the community because it's a part of our scientific method, but it's not the scientific method. It's part of that. If and we, I think with that, uh, you know, with that trial at the same time, there was the reverse, which was positive, but I think that contributed a lot also to understand the concept of uh, timings and uh, when to look for you know, for, uh, yes. for manipulating the dynamics. The, I mean, River, but... the River trial came about 10 years after our trial. And I was, uh, I was, uh, I was pleased to, to see something. The only explanation I had for the trial was the intensity of the care. And where has been done in emergency department, not in, a, in, a, in intensive care, because what, when we did our trial, the starting point, let's say, of SVO2 was exactly similar in the three groups and very similar to the target. So we were already at the target. Yeah. I never saw a, no. a SVO2 was a 46, 50, as in the river. And, and I think you, you mentioned something important there, the, you know, the, the intensity of what we do and how early we do it in, uh, in sepsis, probably that was one of the strongest contributions from Rivers. Indeed, probably the, the latest studies that were negative, in a way, it was a bit like having Rivers against himself, you know, everyone changed because everyone was proactive about treating these patients and probably many had, uh, had already achieved those targets. So. What do you think we, we get out of trials now? Because I, I personally think we still get a lot of information out of these trials, but maybe in a slightly different way. It seems that we are maybe getting rid of uh, uh, therapies that are either dangerous or maybe they are superfluous. And, but that's probably important information to test our knowledge forward. But 
what's your take on this? Well, I, I think it's quite similar. I agree with you first. Second, we have three kinds of therapy. We have the therapy with etiological. We cure the etiology and very not very popular in intensive care. Our trials are usually concentrated on symptomatic therapy. That means to keeping the patient alive while the pathophysiology is taken uh, to care, cytokine storm and this kind of thing. We keep the patient alive. Typically is a mechanical ventilation or the hemodynamic treatment and so on. Now, when we have a positive trial, we do not improve survival. We do decrease the mortality due to the doctors. Our biggest achievement huh, is not to do damage. Six milliliters per kilo, three, two, zero, no, 12, et cetera, et cetera. So and I it, think that's an important message, uh, Luciano. The, the first do no harm. We, absolutely. We've, seen, we've seen it in this pandemic. Sometimes how much the rush to do something sometimes may cause more harm than, uh, than good. And the... And I think we've learned a lot that probably a lot of our uh, job is actually preventing harm and giving time to patients to, to heal. Which, which brings me to, uh, to a question about one of your uh, research uh, achievements. The, you've always talked a lot about the clinical examination, but you have probably introduced the concept of also uh, implementing and enhancing the clinical examination also with some imaging. And... Uh, uh, how did the idea of the baby lung came out? Uh, how did you think about, uh, you know, maybe we have a, a smaller lung to care, a smaller healthy lung to care for, so we have to be maybe a bit more gentle, which to me is the key message of... Uh, well, it's quite simple, because in Europe, uh, we had uh, an, uh, an, an, a group of people, no? in which I were myself, Maurice Lamy, uh, Ed Esternia, uh, Peter Schutter, we were... 10, 11, Bukhil and Bukhardi, we were meeting at our own expenses every six months in one of the places of... And everybody was communicating his own research. And after hearing Goran and Esternia speaking about the atelectasis in patients in, during anesthesia, mm -hmm. at the number three, I say, oh my God, why not to use in... A, RDS. So I said, well, God, do you mind? I don't mind. And uh, because it's impossible in Sweden, in, in the Stockholm. It was impossible with our radiologist, because radiologist is, is, uh, is absolutely useless to do the CT scan in RDS, which is diffuse disease. So uh, one paying black money, the technician, uh, on a Friday night, we went in three, uh, two doctors and four, two nurses, and the technician of the radiology, and we did the first CT scan, huh? which was just curiosity. But I remember it was shivering when I saw this image because it appears something that everybody now is customer to see. But when you grow up with some idea and you see that you have something completely different and you have to change completely your idea, which is the great thing of the research, when you find something that you do not expect. This is the key point. The outlier is the discovery, not the average. 
And was it a similar story also for the prony when you thought about the when the prony the prony was the consequence because the baby lung was up, and so we were putting the the, the baby lung down to have a better perfusion. After two years, they were doing that, uh, and the pure two went up, so we were very happy. And uh, my friend Fumagalli, who was a student at the time, uh, he told me, well, let's see, let me, uh, can I do an, an a CT scan? Uh, of course, so you show how we are intelligent. And of course, the CT scan found <laughs> something completely different, because the baby land disappeared. The, the density moved. Concept which is not really still entered in the mind of the people because very few use this extremely powerful instrument to understand the mechanism. Yeah. So if we if you have to say something to a young intensivist or to a young trainee that is approaching a, a patient with respiratory failure, we've seen so many this uh, this year, probably we've never seen as many in a year as in, in the last 15 months. Uh, what would be a couple of tips that you would tell this person? Well, first, I would suggest something that I almost never succeed in obtaining. is to convince the people that do not exist the clinical attitude and the research as a two different world. Each patient is a research. In each patient, we have to discover something. In each patient, we have to understand the mechanism. Until we will not overcome this dichotomy, which is very common, happens to me very rarely in my life, to work with the unity of, the, of, the, of all the people research and the clinical together. But when you reach that, uh, is uh, as to sound or to sing or to play in one orchestra. You are part uh, of a beautiful harmony. Which probably makes me guess the answer to, the, to this question that we're getting from the audience, which is how much time did you devote towards patient care and how much time towards research? Before you if you have this starting, when, when, I, when I say, hey, why don't you research on a Wednesday afternoon? I start to laugh. On Wednesday night, Wednesday afternoon, I prefer to go to fish and look and waiting and thinking of what I say also maybe in the morning. So and the, the kind of dichotomy, I know that the world is going in another direction, but you know. And Luciano, the, um, on top of the, these contributions is also your experience with ECMO. You've seen ECMO being uh, you know, developed and changing and the trials. And again, we start to understand a bit more where to use it, where not to use it. Uh, where do you see this going? If, if you have to imagine the next 20, 30 years, uh, you know, I, I often think about... Uh, you remember dialysis of uh, hemofiltration machines. Uh, 30 years ago, it was like you had to be in a very specific unit to have it and they kind of become, you know, mainstream. Basically, you cannot have an intensive care without one now. 
Is something like this going to occur also for ECMO in the future or, or where do you see it going? Well, I, I don't have an answer for that, you know, because when I say I'm 28 years old, it's not my problem, basically. But just to answer a little bit to that, my approach would be uh, a little bit different. In these particular patients, having maybe improved the technology and so on, the combination of uh, ECMO or CO2 removal plus some modified mechanical ventilation, modified mechanical ventilation, is less equal or more dangerous than uh, mechanical ventilation alone. This is a key question to be posed before connecting whatever patient. And you don't find an answer in the trial with that. Because with the trial, we know that with the ECMO, we do not kill, which is already a good one because... Uh, I think that's the key message is that, you know, we need to carry on learning physiology and with trials, at least up to this moment, but I, I have some hope that maybe they will change soon, is that we, we have tested one therapy and we see what is harmful or what is not working. Um, but you may have seen recently during this pandemic, you know, the speed of some of the trials, their so-called adaptive designs, maybe bringing the concept of phenotype to individualize treatments. Because what I've never seen so far is, for instance, a trial that randomizes uh, patients to receive the right treatment for that phenotype. We still go to one treatment or the other. What I would like to see is that based on physiology, you give something different. Um, well, in this sense, maybe the, the characterization of this, even with data science and artificial, it, it's opening a new era. Is there something that you you have watched a little bit as a development? Is something that you're interested in? Or what's your take well, on this? No, I, I think that uh, I'm uh, I'm absolutely convinced that uh, for what we know, the diagnostic tool, the possibility with artificial intelligence of which I do not know absolutely anything, uh, but will uh, we'll improve our way to understand on how uh, precise we are in that, uh, there is no doubt that will what happen. I do not know how much of the creativity is in there. I repeat, uh, I do not uh, recall any discovery of mechanism with the big, uh, with the big trials. And uh, with ECMO, no, you, you, you find that the most, I think COVID, uh, at the end of the COVID, the COVID story. I mean, the COVID uh, disclosed and a tremendous uh, ignorance in our community, plus good things. Why I say that? Look at the literature. We have thousands of papers, okay? And most of them are low level epidemiology. I put prone 10 patients. Well, I put 100. I put 500. I put 2 millions. Good. 30% response, 40%. Who cares? My question is why 
Mr. John responded and Mr. Smith did not. Once again, which is the mechanism behind that? And you do not understand that we made us of people, that's it. You like or you dislike? <laughs> this is the reality. But is it tremendous the amount of epidemiology is in the present at the moment. And epidemiology is the first step of the scientific method. When you collect the observation, then you need the theory, then you need the hypothesis, then you need to verify the hypothesis, then you need to falsify the hypothesis, blah, 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 and back again. We are very far from that still. I agree with you. Um, I would just like to make a comment about the, you know, the COVID has shown some of the weaknesses that you have highlighted of our community, but also the strength, you know, Absolutely, of, how much of course. We, we got together in this. We, we have one minute to go. Uh, you know, you've been a past president of our society. You've seen it all. You're really seeing intensive care medicine growing. What, what would you like to see, to, or to say, actually, not to see, to say, to, to a young uh, trainee in intensive care? That probably this is the most fascinating work possible for a man. With just one caution, be careful that we are not God. We are not owner of the life and of the death. Sometimes of the death, not of the life. Step forward has to be done, but it's absolutely fascinating, attractive, and sometimes dangerous work. And whatever you do in your life, if you do intensive care, this will deeply change your life. You like or you don't like? We like it. And with this, I would like to thank Buchan, uh, you being a fantastic first uh, guest. And thank you everyone for the questions that you've been uh, posting through social media. And uh, thank you really, Luciano, for all your insights and sharing uh, all uh, parts of your life uh, with us. Thank you all. Ciao to everybody. Ciao. Wiedersehen.